Our Old Testament scripture reading is Genesis 23. It's also the text for our sermon as we continue our series in the book of Genesis. When I planned out this series, my original plan was for chapter 23 and 24 to be treated together. Chapter 23 is the death of Sarah, 25 begins with the death of Abraham. Seems like a simple thing to point out. And then we would focus on the story of Isaac and Rebekah. Rebekah, a wife, being found for Isaac. We are not even going to be reading chapter 24. I want to focus us on chapter 23 this morning. In fact, we may not end up reading 24 at all because of the way the schedule goes. So I want to encourage all of you to read that chapter this week. It's a wonderful story. We may not have opportunity to read the whole thing. But it is context for what we read here in 23. We want to remember, after the chapter we're about to read will be uh, the marriage of Isaac and Rebekah, and then after that, the death of Abraham. Genesis 23. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. The Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, my Lord, you are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of your tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land. And he said to them, If you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. It is at the end of his field." For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place. Now Ephron was sitting among the Hittites, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites, of all who were in at the gate of all who went in at the gate of his city. No, my lord, hear me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. Then Abraham bowed down before the people of the land, and he said to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, But if you will, hear me. I give the price of the field. Accept it from me that I may bury my dead there. Ephron answered Abraham, My Lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver, what is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Abraham listened to Ephron, and Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver, according to the weights current among the merchants. So the field of Ephron in Machpelah, which, which was to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it and all the trees that were in the field throughout this, its whole area, was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites, before all who went in at the gate of his city. 
After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our New Testament reading is Hebrews 11, verses 8 through 16. Hebrews 11, the great chapter on faith, a chapter we've referred to uh, several times in the series on Genesis. I think we've read this portion already, but we read it again in connection with the death of Sarah. Hebrews 11, verses 8 through 16. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven, and as many as the immeasurable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we celebrate together in prayer the beauty and glory of your word. We praise you for the unity of Scripture, the unity of your ways around our Lord Jesus Christ and made known to us by your Holy Spirit. We celebrate this, we thank you for it, we praise you for this beauty of your word. As we meditate upon your word together, as we hear it publicly proclaimed in our midst, we pray for the presence and work of your Holy Spirit so that your word by your Spirit's blessing might be powerful and effective among us. We are gathered here from so many different circumstances, so many different seasons of life, things that weigh upon our hearts and minds. We gather all of this together and we humbly acknowledge that we need one thing, and that is your ministry to us through your word and sacrament. And so we pray now for the presence of your Holy Spirit that all this might be for us truly a blessing. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. (laughs) 
Congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, we have just read an account of Abraham seeking to buy a plot of land to bury his wife, Sarah. We heard about the death of Sarah. We heard about, at the end of the chapter, the burial of Sarah. But the great majority of the chapter, the majority of the verses were taken up with Abraham negotiating to buy a plot of land. Negotiating in a way that is, many argue, the origin of phrases used to this day in the Middle East when making a negotiation. Oh, that amount of money, what is that between you and me? There is an an earthiness to these events. And one might wonder, I think we should all acknowledge that we wonder at some level, just what is the point to all of that? Sarah died, Sarah was buried. Why all the negotiating over land? This is especially a question for us as those who have grown up in the context of American evangelicalism. And I don't just mean grown up individually, I mean our churches having come into existence in the context of American evangelicalism in which the overall telling of the story is that yes, Old Testament stuff is all earthy and concerned about things like land, but Christians in the New Testament were concerned with spiritual things. And so heaven matters more and we can, the soul matters more than the body and we're used to a kind of contrast between spiritual things and earthy things that then might make us wonder all the more what is the point to a chapter like this. But the New Testament is not less earthy than the Old. Indeed, it is more earthy. It is in the New Testament that we have proclaimed for us the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ from the dead. The reason we are here on the first day of the week is that a body was laid in a tomb and the body that went into the tomb came out of the tomb. And part of the whole point to the story, to the account, to the witnesses, to the eating and drinking with his disciples as we heard testified to in scripture even this morning, the whole point to all of that was the earthiness of what had happened. And so that great account of the death and resurrection of Christ affirming God's created intention for his creation tells us we need to take seriously this text. Indeed, there is an earthiness to what God is doing for us in worship this morning. We just had water splashed around. Lots of it. It's earthy. Water. We have before us bread and wine. Things that sum up the good things of God's creation all of the growing of plants and the creative ingenuity of human beings making these things, all of these earthy things are before us in worship. Why? Because the resurrection of Christ affirms them. So this morning, we come to this text and we're going to linger over it. We know that the fun of the story of Isaac and Rebecca is coming. Please read that this week. But I want us to linger over and be challenged by Genesis 23 in particular. We're going to do this in three steps. The first step, we're going to consider the mourning of Abraham at the death of Sarah. The second step, we're going to look at all of the back and forth of Abraham's negotiating for land, and we're going to ask why. And then the third step, we're going to combine those things, and we're going to reflect on just what all of that means, how it speaks to us as the church of Jesus Christ today. And in all of this, what are we desiring to hear? The gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. First, the morning of Abraham at the death of Sarah. Verse 23, 
Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is, Hebron, in the land of Canaan. Now, there's debates over whether or not that number 127 is meant to be symbolic. We are in Scripture here. We are past the time of people living, you know, strange lengths of time. This is within the range of perhaps an imaginable possibility. So it's debated. That's fine. The point is, whether literal or not, it's the imagery, the announcement of a full, long life. And the summary phrase is the main point. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And so at this moment of Sarah's death, there's a reference to her whole span of life. And there is a reference in a way that draws forward in our memories all that we have spent time together looking at in the book of Genesis. All of the ups and downs of her life. All of the times of fear. All the times of being taken into the households of powerful men because of the foolishness of her husband and being threatened. All of the times of blessing and rescue and the clarity of God's protection and deliverance. The overall shape of her life from the laughter of fear, doubt, anxiety. Can God really do what he promised? To the laughter of joy at the birth of Isaac and the fulfillment, the doing, the accomplishing of what God had promised. So many memories of fear, so many glad memories. All of that summed up. These were the years of the life of Sarah. Sarah dies in Canaan, in the land of promise. And the verse continues. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. Two words are used for what Abraham is doing. And by the way, if you had doubts reasonably through the course of the story of just what their relationship was like, this is affirming, at least as an important thread through all of it, something that was good and real about their relationship as husband and wife, the way that Abraham here mourns and grieves. The two words used, combining them, serves to emphasize the realness, uh, the energy, the depth, the meaningfulness of Abraham's mourning. The first word, to mourn, is the word specifically for mourning someone who has died. And it brings to mind all of the ancient customs of mourning and grieving. This is full expression in response to this death. And the word weep is a word that actually could be used for other forms of weeping. Weeping for joy would be the same word. So what's the point here? Mourning, emphasizing the reality of this being grief and mourning at death. And weeping being added to emphasize that he really is weeping. And that it's real. Well, there are several things noteworthy about this description of Abraham's mourning. Two in particular. One is what we just described. The scriptures want you to have a vivid, clear picture that Abraham is not stoically saying, uh, oh, God has a plan, everything's okay. Abraham is not stoically pretending death is a good thing. He is clearly mourning and weeping what has happened. The second noteworthy thing, as one writer points out, this is the first reference to mourning death in all of Scripture. And as one writer points out, and I, I, want, to, I want to refer to this because I was so struck by his pointing this out to me in Scripture. 
Think of all of the death that there has been to this point. Cain and Abel. Think of all of the death at the flood. All of the children of parents who have died. All of the parents who have been laid in the grave. Death has been something of a theme through Genesis up to this point. Not one reference to mourning or grieving. Here we have our first reference. Why? Well, let's actually stay here for a moment. Up till this point in Genesis, up until God has given his promises to Abraham, human beings in general would have had every reason to think maybe death is just the way it is. Human beings would have every reason to think maybe death is just how the world was made to be. They look around, they see that animals die, humans die, humans doing horrible things to each other. For all they knew, they're simply trapped in a universe, trapped in a reality where death and destruction just is the way things are. Why would you mourn it or grieve it? It is just the way it is. We can imagine pagan philosophies that have come to us this day, Stoic philosophies, for example. Now, there is some wisdom in Stoicism, we have to be careful, but philosophies that simply give themselves over to the reality of death and say death is just how it is. In fact, the key is to get over it. The key is to control your response to it, and then everything will be fine. Now, if you consider that possibility, and we know this from pagan cultures of this being real, that human beings would have had every reason to think that maybe death is just the way it is, so why would you mourn it? What then happens in the story of Abraham? But the Creator speaks. And He speaks words of promise. And He speaks words of promise that reach far into the future. He speaks words of promise about land and descendants, and more than that, about blessing to the nations. Now, I want to speculate for a moment, because I think we need to imagine these kinds of possibilities, though we do not know. Abraham met Melchizedek. I love to imagine the possibility that in all of that, Melchizedek handed Abraham a scroll, a memory, a recording of what perhaps had been spoken to Noah, what had been spoken to Adam and Eve and the curse. However it happened, we don't know. But we know the memory was maintained of an even more ancient promise of the serpent being defeated. And so the word of promise that has been spoken to Abraham, the promise driving the story, one of the things that word of promise does, the creator saying there is a future, there is something I am doing, there is blessing to the nations that is going to happen. One of the things that that word of promise brings about is mourning. Mourning at death. Because now we can't say death is a good thing. The word of promise, the announcement of God giving a future means death is an enemy. It means death is a foreign invader. It means we don't simply say it's the way it is. We don't simply say we control our response, we control our feelings, and now we can get through it just fine. Rather, the promise means death must be mourned. We don't think of it this way. There is so much false piety in the Christian church in particular that says, well, because there's promises, a better place, something in the future, then like, death is less bad. Like, death, we're, we're supposed to act like death is no longer a bad thing. Oh, they're in a better place now. Everything's fine. Our witness to the world is precisely our mourning, 
our grieving. Because we say to the world, because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, death is not the way it was made to be. It is truly bad. It is not simply the way of things. It is not simply the order of, of, of the way the world goes. It is invader in God's good creation. So that Abraham's mourning, we can say, is because of the promise. Death is not the way it was meant to be. There is a second thing now that Abraham does. Now we have this whole lengthy exchange of Abraham trying to find somewhere to bury Sarah. He says to the Hittites, verse 3, Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. He says, give me property for a burying place. Now here... So this, the second thing now, so what was the first thing? Abraham mourns at the death of Sarah. Mourning highlights the reality of promise. Right, what's the second thing now? This whole process of burial. Let's focus on this. What did Abraham just ask for? He said, give me land so that I can bury my dead. Now the Hittites respect Abraham. Abraham, through many seasons of his life, has been a blessing to those around him. As he was called to be as the covenant people, they respect him. I love this language. Hear us, my Lord, you are a prince of God among us. And they say right away, they grant his wish. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Now, wouldn't you think at that point the whole exchange is over? He asked for a place to bury Sarah. The Hittites, they respect Abram. They say, pick the best place. Bury Sarah. Ah, what did Abraham ask for? He said, give me land that I might bury my dead. They said, go ahead and bury your dead. They did not offer to give him land. And here is the twist. Abraham's after something more. This is not just a practical, he needs somewhere to bury her. There's something more he's after. And so he says, actually, I know this guy, Ephron. And he has land that I want, and I want to ask Ephron, I want to ask if I can buy Ephron's land. Verse 8, he said to them, if you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. And then Abraham says, for the full price, let him give it to me. Okay, well, Ephron apparently also likes Abraham. Maybe they're friends. We have no idea, right? But somewhere behind this story, Abraham says, I want his land. Ephron offers to give it to him. Well, why isn't that the end of the story? Right? You think, okay, fine. Look, Abraham, you got your land now. He's offering to give it to you. Why, is, why, why isn't it done now? Well, Abraham didn't want someone to give him the land. What did Abraham say he wanted to do? He said, for the full price. He wants to buy it. So now there's the back and forth. Ephron offers to give. Abraham says, I want to buy it. Now, we don't know Ephron's negotiations. This could have been a negotiating tactic. Maybe Ephron was sort of, you know, faking to sound hospitable and he was counting on selling it all along. That could be. We don't know. But we do know that what Abraham is pursuing is he wants to pay the full price. He's been saying that all along. The worry, most likely, is if, that, if this Ephron guy just gives it to him, well, then he can also just take it back. It's not, it's not permanent. And there's this reference throughout that it's all in the hearing of the men, not the hearing of the people of the land, the hearing of the Hittites, the publicness of the deal being made. 
so that Abraham finally gets Ephron to agree to actually sell the land. He says, a piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver, which is a lot, by the way, what is that between you and me? There you're dead. What is the result of all of that? Abraham has bought, he owns a plot of land in the middle of the land of the Hittites, a place where he is a sojourner, a foreigner. As he has just said, he has now bought that place of land to bury Sarah. And then we have the conclusion, verse 19. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan, and then emphasized the field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites. Why all the back and forth? Well, brothers and sisters, here we have, at the moment of the burial of Sarah, an expression of faith in the promise of God to give Israel the land. An expression of faith that God had said, I am giving you this land. An expression of faith that God will do everything that he had promised. This land is surrounded by, controlled by the Hittites. They could at any point keep Abraham from accessing this land he just bought. He has no reason to be confident he will actually be able to control it. What is he confident in? That God will one day do what he has said. And it is at the burial of Sarah that that hope, that promise in God's promised future is expressed. Abraham burying Sarah in the land that he has bought is an expression of faith that God will do what he has promised. But you know, if you are a long time in Genesis so far, that the land was never just about the land. The New Testament is very clear that the land was about far more. And by the way, I want to be clear, this is not spiritualizing. This is not saying back then it was about the land, and then the New Testament comes along and says, oh no, actually it's about something else. What the New Testament tells us is that the land was always about more. That God was always doing something, intending something, promising something more than just the land. So that Hebrews 11 tells us that when Abraham confessed that he was a sojourner, he's in the land of Canaan. He could have said, this is, this is mine. God's promised it. He says he's a sojourner. Why? He is speaking deep spiritual truth. That even when Israel would own the land, King David would say, I am a sojourner with you. In Psalm 39. That that expression of being sojourner, why? Because the land was never just about the land. It was about what God promised to do in the future. Hebrews 11 tells us they were desiring a heavenly city, a city with, with foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Heavenly city does not mean heaven instead of earth. It means a city built by heaven. Revelation says coming down to earth in the new creation. That the promise of land was about new creation ultimately. So that Romans 4 verse 13 says that God promised Abraham he would inherit, it says, the world, the Greek word is the cosmos. That God's promise to Abraham from the beginning was not just a plot of land, it was the whole world through the one who would be born to Abraham, our Lord Jesus Christ. So that when Abraham buys the land and lays Sarah in the tomb, it is faith in all of that. It is faith in the new creation, in resurrection, in the world set right, in the curse defeated. It is faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, Abraham will soon join Sarah in that tomb. 
chapter 25. Isaac and Rebekah, the great story of chapter 24, Isaac and Rebekah marrying, they will soon, in the grand scheme of things, join Abraham and Sarah in that very same tomb. They do so anticipating that our Lord Jesus Christ would be laid in a tomb. And he would be laid in a tomb as an expression of hope and faith and confidence in what God would one day do. And his being raised on the third day is the announcement, the accomplishing and the announcing of all that Abraham was hoping for when he laid Sarah in that tomb in the land of Canaan. The practice of burial, an expression of hope. Now, a couple things we've got to say there. We're going to spend like the, next, the rest of our time concluding this morning on that combination of things. The mourning and grieving and the hope being expressed. But I want to pause just for a moment to note the specific practice of laying the body in the tomb. That that practice that goes all the way back among the covenant people was a practice of hope that God cares about the body. That we are not just about spirits dwelling in God's presence one day, but that God promises the resurrection of the body. And the practice of burial itself Respecting the body, honoring the body, caring about where the body is buried, all the work Abraham does to buy a plot of land, the laying the body in the tomb, every part of that is an expression outwardly expressed of both that mourning and grieving and the hope of resurrection. And brothers and sisters, it is a practice that I want to set before you that we need to cling to, that we need to maintain, of gathering around the grave and placing the body in the grave. I'm often asked, is cremation okay? Three parts of the answer, quickly. First, sometimes it has to be done. Obviously, it's okay then. Cremation is just a speeding up of what's going to happen in the grave otherwise. It's not like, oh, then they can't be raised or something ridiculous like that. That is not the Christian claim in any way, shape, or form. Second, We cannot say from Scripture, thus saith the Lord, it is a sin to cremate instead of burying. We cannot say that. Third, we can say very clearly, on the basis of Christian tradition for centuries, millennia, and on the basis of innumerable scriptural themes, that we ought to prize and cherish the practice of burial, and that we ought to make much of it, and that we ought to love it, and that we ought to seek to maintain that practice among the covenant people for the very same reason that Abraham cared about it, an expression of hope in the promise of resurrection. As we conclude, I want, and I'm misleading you with the word conclude. We've got a few more minutes still. As we conclude, I want to reflect together now on the combination of those two threads, those two themes united together in this one chapter of Scripture. Abraham's mourning and grief and his devotion to the expression of hope. We put those together, what must we say? We we have made much in our time in Genesis in the shape of the covenant, the way things go, being consistent throughout Scripture because God's ways are consistent. What then is announced to us in this combination of things? One of the things announced to us is what Hebrews 11 said. These all died in faith. 
that we as the covenant people of God, as the church of Jesus Christ, are allowed, are enabled, are called to die in faith. Now, we've made much of death being an enemy. It is a foreign invader in God's good creation. It is not the way the world is made to be. And so we must look to our Lord Jesus Christ and His resurrection as the announcement of God's defeat as death. But that now does change the character of our death. As our catechism says, it puts an end to our sinning and is our entrance into eternal life. And we must hold both of these together. It is an enemy to be mourned, but its character has been changed. The sting of death has been removed. So we have beautifully the image in Genesis 23 of Abraham's mourning, but we're also going to have this language later in Genesis 25, verse 8. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. Now there's the verse there, the tone of this being an ordinary and in many ways good completion to the ark of Abraham's life. He is gathered to his people. And you see, when we look to our Lord Jesus Christ and we hear the announcement of both death being an enemy and a defeated enemy, we are now able to have this orientation in a meaningful way toward death. As the completion of a life lived in God's presence, as the final pouring out of self unto God as our creator, anticipating being received into God's presence in the hope of resurrection when Christ returns. Sarah and Abraham, Hebrews 11, sets before us, they all died in faith. It also means that we mourn, we grieve death. As Christians, we ought to be among those most comfortable mourning it. We don't have to pretend it's not a thing. We don't have to hide from it. We don't have to keep it a secret and try to avoid it as much as possible. As Christians, we are freed to acknowledge it because the good creator has made himself known through our Lord Jesus Christ and has announced that he does not abandon us to death, but that he is is defeating death. And that means precisely that it is an enemy. So the Apostle Paul says, I do not want you to grieve as others do who have no hope. That does not mean we do not grieve. We grieve with hope. And so I don't have specifics for you at this point, but I want to encourage us as the covenant community to be sure that we are embracing that part of what is happening. To seek out ways and to make it, to make it clear that we are acknowledging the reality of death and that we are willing to mourn it together by faith with hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Another thing it does, if we combine all of these things, is it affirms the goodness of this life. The resurrection of Christ is God's announcement that he is not abandoning this creation and these bodies. It is God's announcement that the good creator is acting to restore and renew this creation and these bodies. So that when Abraham shows all of this concern for a plot of land, he's not being unspiritual. He is showing faith and confidence that it is this creation, this land, this cosmos that God has promised as the inheritance of his people. And it is these bodies that God has promised the restoration of. 
we are so tempted over and over in the Christian church, not just in modern times, but at various times throughout church history, to fall into an opposition of soul and body, of spiritual and earthy. What Abraham does here affirms the goodness of this life in hope of the resurrection of Christ. So that when we say things like, there's many who, what they hear Christians saying is, well, you're going to go to heaven and what you die, so who cares about all of this? And many of us have been shaped by, I would dare say tormented by, a piety that then views all of life in that way. That therefore, all that matters is spiritual things. So all that matters is, you know, you better become a missionary or something, then you can make sure you're doing something worthwhile because all this, or, this ordinary stuff, you know, on, the, on that telling doesn't matter at all. But the resurrection of Christ says all of your very ordinary things of this life are good and glorifying to God and meaningful as for God's glory and as the enjoyment of fellowship with Him. Stop spiritualizing this. I mean the really zoomed in things, the details, the struggles, the hard work of your life, your calling right here and now. Abraham's buying of a plot of land, anticipating the new creation, tells you that all of that earthy, detailed, zoomed in, ordinary life stuff matters and it is good and it is pleasing to God your enjoyment of the ordinary good things of this life matters and is good and is pleasing to God and finally it means that there is a goodness to the whole arc of life to all of the seasons of life we live in a culture that idolizes youth that worships youth. And this gives us all manner of temptations to how we're going to make it through the seasons of life faithfully. How we can make it through the seasons of life without throwing everything away foolishly and recklessly. We live in a culture that worships youth. Why? Well, in part, because it has to pretend death isn't a thing. We don't have to pretend that. In fact, we can affirm all manners of goodness to all of the seasons of life, to the season early in life of receiving good things from those who have come before us, to seasons later in life of now pouring out those good things for the sake of those who are coming after us, for seasons of pouring out wisdom, seasons of pouring out the benefits of having lived, living before God's face and for His glory, that we must embrace the goodness of every season. Not because we're saying death is good. It's an enemy, but it's been defeated. And the resurrection of Christ says now this whole thing matters. It is good. We're, we're not saying it's, it's not spiritual, therefore who cares? We're saying no, it is, it is this life, this arc of life that precisely is good and meaningful. Indeed, between the death of Sarah and the death of Abraham is, is Abraham working hard to find a wife for Isaac and making sure he doesn't marry someone from within the Canaanites. What is Abraham doing? He is embracing that generational overlap. It's not that my time is done and now it's, no, no, no. It's like now is the time of wisdom, of pouring out self for others in the way of the covenant. This is what God said was the whole point to his calling Abraham. Genesis 18, verse 9. Verse 19. Whew, I thought I almost did it again. Had the wrong verse written down. I did not. Genesis 18, verse 19. 
For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. God says the whole point is that in this way of the covenant, this good life will be passed on. And when it says to his children, this is not talking about families. This is not talking about parents and the children in their home. This is the way of the covenant. All who are of faith of Abraham are children of Abraham. And so all of us in the church in the way of the covenant are are called to embrace every season of life as a time of pouring self out for the sake of those who are coming after us. And that whole arc, that whole season is good. I want to challenge you to live to the end with that full investment, a full pouring pouring self out for the good of the church and Christ and the covenant and the kingdom, and that in the embrace of that made possible by the hope of the defeat of death in Christ is the life that is good and flourishing. We can grieve with hope and we can affirm the goodness of this life because Jesus has risen from the dead. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you would give us in our Lord Jesus Christ this life of faith. You know our fears. You know our doubts. They are not new. They are shared with your people throughout the ages. And so we ask you to be faithful, to minister to us in them, that we might love and embrace every season of life for your glory. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen.